Hello, and welcome to Fermont's Last Theater in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Alex Hancock, and this podcast is part two of our series devoted to the life, fiction, and letters of the great American novelist Willa Cather. I'm Portia Adney, and I play Willa Cather. We rejoin Willa in Pittsburgh in the summer of 1896. At 22, she has just moved from Nebraska to become managing editor of Home Monthly, a national magazine for housewives. Willa settles into the demands of almost single-handedly editing a monthly magazine with an ease that surprises even her. At one of her first social outings, she has an unexpected chance to revive the essay about Thomas Carlyle that was her first published work. My dear Mariel, Mrs. Gerwig took me on a high tea given by the editor of the Dispatch. Their exercises were on Thomas Carlyle, and they called on me for an impromptian, and so help me, I had the consummate nerve to get up and spile off that old essay with the fire and fervor of the tragic muse. The rashness of the idea fascinated me. I just soared. It all came back to me. Well, I modestly assure you that they fell over each other to shake hands with me. They are awfully stupid here. I thought it was really made up as I went along, and they like that sort of sophomoric thing. Since then, I have been called on until I am almost distracted. I will just have to shut right down on it so it won't interfere with my work. Yours as ever, Willa. In another letter to Mary Elgear, she describes a visit from Dorothy Canfield, the daughter of the Chancellor of the University of Nebraska, whom Willa had befriended while a student there. Her friendship with Dorothy will last the rest of Willa's life. Dorothy approves of the young doctor who wants me to marry him. I have not as yet decided whether I will or not. It would be a very excellent match in every way, but I don't care for him. I suppose, though, that really doesn't matter much. Business affairs are going much better than they were, and I am doing my work better. That is, I am learning to keep still and do just what I'm told. Of course, the magazine is the worst trash in the world. But it is trash they want, and trash they pay me for, and they shall have it. Socially, my life here is more pleasant than I ever thought it could be anywhere. You see, here I have neither short hair, nor dramatic propensities, nor any other old thing to queer me. It's like beginning a new life in broad daylight, away from the old mistakes. As Charles Lamb says, God, how we like to be liked. (laughs) Despite Dorothy Canfield's approval of the unnamed young doctor, Willa does not marry him, nor anyone else she meets in Pittsburgh. After a year of almost nonstop work on the magazine, she resigns her post and goes back to Nebraska for a long vacation. While there, she is offered the position of drama critic for the Pittsburgh Leader. But when she returns to Pittsburgh in the fall, her job changes drastically, as she relates to her old friend Louise Pound. I came to the leader expecting to do their dramatic work only. A few days after my arrival, the Day Telegraph editor left for New York, and I went on to help do his work until a man could be got to take his place. I liked the work, and a wild idea took a hold of me to demand a place for myself. Of course, there were objections to my age and sex and inexperience, but I hung on, and they said I might try it for a few weeks as an experiment. The work is not quite so thrilling as dramatic work, but it is a much more responsible and remunerative position. The chief requisites are discretion, some general knowledge of foreign affairs and history, 
and the trick of writing headlines. It all has to be done so quickly. And a dozen telegraph boys at one's elbow rattle one somewhat. Well, you know I am naturally slouchy and uncertain, so you will appreciate that I have been on the racetrack since my return. Saturday night, the directors met and gave me the editorship, and the boys gave me a supper, and the other papers had a few headlines about me, and there's an end of it. The work is stiff while you're at it, but no ending exciting. It is so funny to be almost wild because somebody in Paris shot herself just five minutes too late to get in on the dramatic page where she ought to be and have to put her right next to a women's Christian temperance union convention in Ohio. And it's so perplexing to think of different headlines for 12 suicides all at once. People show such a poverty of imagination in the way they kill themselves. My life here is a queer one, cut up between rather rigorous work and the craziest possible diversions. The theater is about only part of the old life that merges into this. Mr. Farrar broke his leg in a football game several months ago, so I only see him in plaster. But now that he doesn't really suffer anymore, it is rather fun. Unfortunately, I don't seem to be able to feel very deeply about him. His friendship is so warm and comforting and near to me that I don't want to change it for the other article in which the personal equation would be sure to make trouble. Oh, I have grown enamored of liberty. To be wholly free. To really be of some use somewhere. To do with one's money what one likes. To help those who have helped me. To pay the debts of one's loves and of one's hates. Over the next several years in Pittsburgh, Willa's life settles into a sort of annual rhythm. In the fall, winter, and spring, she works hard at the newspaper, while still finding time for her own poems and short stories. In the summer, she returns to Nebraska to be with her family, often taking excursions into South Dakota and Wyoming with one or more siblings, as she writes to her new friend, Helen Siebel. My brother and I are now on 10 days shooting trip out in the Black Hills. From there, we go on through Dakota into Wyoming, We are just simply getting all the fun that can possibly be got out of each day as it passes. I eat, drink, and am merry, for in October I return to Pittsburgh and the leader office. We will push into big game country, and in the handling of the gun, I expect to joyfully forget the usage of the pen. Tell Mr. Siebel I never read a newspaper now, never look at them. I defy them. Goodbye. My brother says the town is burning down, and we have a golden opportunity to play Nero. (laughs) Back in Pittsburgh, Cather meets Isabel McClung while visiting the dressing room of an actress one night. Soon afterward, she writes to a friend. When I arrived at the Union Station here, Isabel met me, looking as though all the Frias of the Parthenon ought to be tripping after her, and I began to have a better opinion of Pittsburgh. She's so darned good to me that she's making me feel positively kiddish. She'll have me playing with dolls next. We've been tramping over the hills and hearing the Damroche Orchestra every day and having no end of a frivolous good time. The daughter of a prominent Pittsburgh family, Isabel will become one of the two most important women in Willa's life. In some sense, the love of her life. At Isabella's invitation, she soon moves into the McClung's mansion where for the first time in her life, 
She gets to have her own room and bath and a separate writing room. She lives there for her last six years in Pittsburgh. In 1901, Willa leaves journalism for a time to become a high school English teacher. Anyone who is taught full-time at any level will be amused to learn that Willa imagines her new job will leave her more time and energy for her own writing. The reality of teaching soon disabuses her of that notion. But at least teaching literature reflects her own interests better than churning out newspaper and magazine articles. During these years, she writes some of her first stories that are still read today, including Paul's Case, which will become her most anthologized story, though hardly her most characteristic. Such stories as A Wagner Matinee, A Death in the Desert, and The Sculptor's Funeral are much closer to Cather's later fiction in their focus on small towns on the western plains. At the time they're published, some readers are troubled by these stories, claiming they depict small-town American life unfairly. When fellow author Kate Cleary writes to praise the sculptor's funeral after it appears in the January 1905 issue of McClure's magazine, Cather thanks her for understanding the story's bleak portrait of a western town. Your corroboration is especially grateful to me since I have heard the story severely taken to task on the score of willful exaggeration. The people who found the thing distorted had very little experience of life on the other side of the Missouri. They insisted that life was everywhere the same. Some of us know that, in certain respects, it is not. It gives me a very genuine pleasure to know that the story has rung true to someone besides myself, that the treatment does not seem to you exaggerated, and that it recalls that country to you. Anyone who has lived in one of those little western towns must, I think, have a very keen and definite feeling about it. But it is almost hopeless to try to communicate it to anyone who has had not that experience. It gives me a very genuine pleasure to know that the story has rung true to someone besides myself, that the treatment does not seem to you exaggerated, and that it recalls that country to you. Anyone who has lived in one of those little western towns must, I think, have a very keen and definite feeling about it. But it is almost hopeless to try to communicate it to anyone who has not had that experience. May 1905 sees the publication of The Troll Garden, her first collection of stories, to mostly positive reviews. But completing her first novel continues to be a struggle, as she acknowledges to fellow writer Witter Binner. Dear Mr. Binner, you ask me about the novel. The truth is that I have done absolutely nothing with it. It seems to be not quite bad enough to throw away and not quite good enough to wrestle with again. Therefore, it reposes in my old hat box. In spring 1906, Willa makes one of the most important decisions of her life when she moves to New York City to write and edit for McClure's, one of the most widely read and politically astute magazines of the day. We don't know if she takes the novel in a hat box with her to New York, but she never mentions that particular novel again in any surviving letter. Her first major assignment is to write a biography of Mary Baker Eddy, founder of Christian Science, for serialization in McClure's. Her research builds on that done by previous writers at the magazine, but soon becomes an enormous undertaking in itself. My dearest father, 
I certainly hope I shall never get into a job as hard and perplexing as this Christian science. So many people have worked at it and got the documents all mixed up that it drives me to distraction sometimes. The Christian scientists are spending thousands of dollars to confuse us and throw us off the scent at every turn. And every statement in our articles will, of course, be subjected to the most bitter criticism. (sighs) I feel as if I were sitting on a volcano all the time. Fortunately, I keep well. I am tired and have not very steady nerves just now. But if I continue to hear good news from you, that will help me a great deal. Lovingly, Willie. Willis spends great stretches of the next two years in Boston researching and writing lengthy articles and turning them into a book, The Life of Mary Baker G. Eddy and the History of Christian Science, which is finally published by Doubleday in 1909, with the original researcher named as author. But as exhausting as she finds these labors, they bear fruit in two important ways. She is compelled to complete a full-length book, even if it is non-fiction and far removed from her interests, and she gets to meet some of Boston's leading cultural figures, most importantly, fiction writer Sarah Orne Jewett. When Cather sends Jewett two of her short stories in progress, Jewett responds with a letter that will play a major role in Cather's development as an artist. In Jewett's eyes, Cather is doomed to stagnate as a fiction writer as long as she devotes the greater portion of her energies to journalism, to observation instead of insight. Just before Christmas of 1908, Cather writes a long letter in grateful reply. My dear, dear Miss Jewett, such a kind and earnest and friendly letter you sent me. You see, I was not made to have to do with affairs, what Mr. McClure calls men and measures. Consequently, I live about as much during the day as a trapeze performer does when he is on the bars. Catch the right bar at the right minute, or into the net you go. I feel all the time so bereft of myself. My mind is off doing trapeze work all day and only comes back to me when it is dog-tired and wants to creep into my body and sleep. Then reading so much poorly written matter as I have to read has a deadening effect. Many great and wise people have been able to do that, but I am neither large enough nor wise enough to do it without getting a dread of everything that is made out of words. I have often thought of trying to get three or four months of freedom a year, but when the planning of articles is pretty much in one's head, it is difficult to hand these many little details over to another. Mr. McClure wants me to write articles on popular science, so-called, and other things for half of each week and attend to the office work in the other half. He wants, above all, good clear-cut journalism, which I do not despise, but I get nothing to breathe out of it. (sighs) Mr. McClure tells me that he does not think I will ever be able to do much at writing stories, that I'm a good executive, and I had better let it go at that. I sometimes, indeed, I very often, think that he is right. At 34, one ought to have some sureness in their pen and some facility in turning out a story. But I always come into it naked and shivery and without any bones. I never learn anything about it at all. 
I sometimes wonder whether one can possibly be meant to do the thing at which they are more blind and inept and blundering than at anything else in the world. The sort of material Mr. McClure wants is about as much food to live by as elaborate mental arithmetic would be. It's like going around the world in a train and never getting off to see anything closer. I have not a repertorial mind. I can't get things in fleeting glimpses, and I can't get any pleasure out of them, and the excitement of it only wears me out. Now, the kind of life that makes one feel empty and shallow and superficial, that makes one dread to read and dread to think, can't be the kind of life one was meant to live. That kind of excitement does to my brain exactly what I have seen alcohol do to men's, spread one's very brain cells apart so that everything leaks out as the power does in a broken circuit. So whether or not the chief is right about my never doing much writing, I think one's immortal soul is to be considered a little. Five years more of this will make me fat, sour, an ill-tempered lady, and fussy, worst of all, and assertive. All people who do feats on the flying trapeze and never think are as cocky as terriers after rats, you know. If I stopped working next summer, I would have money enough to live very simply for three or four years. That would give me time to pull myself together. Still, I don't think that my pen would ever travel very fast, even along smooth roads. But I would write a little. It's so foolish to live and not to save your soul. It's so foolish to lose your real pleasures for the supposed pleasures of the chase or of the stock exchange. I do feel like such a rabbit most of the time. I don't mean that I get panic-stricken. I am still called executive at the office. But inside, I feel like that. Isn't there a new disease, beloved by psychologists called split personality? It takes Cather three more years to break partially free of McClure's, enough to finally complete her first novel. And even then, she keeps working diligently at the magazine, often sending money home to her forever struggling parents. In the spring of 1912, Cather's first novel is published. Alexander's Bridge sells fairly well, especially in England, and meets with mostly positive reviews. But it shows the strong influence of Henry James, and Willa knows that she has not yet found her own voice. She is on the verge of doing so. Many years later, she writes about her journey to the Southwest in that spring of 1912. The longer I stayed in a country I really did care about, and among the people who are a part of the country, the more unnecessary and superficial a book like Alexander's Bridge seemed to me. I did no writing down there, but I recovered from the conventional editorial point of view. The conventional editorial point of view. The tendency of journalism to settle for observation instead of aiming for insight is exactly what Cather has needed to recover from, as she has also needed to break free from English and European ideas of the proper subjects of fiction. Here are some passages from letters she wrote on this long summer journey. I am almost sure I would work at Albuquerque, New Mexico. It is in the most beautiful country I have ever seen anywhere. Like the country between Marseilles and Nice, only much more brilliant. 
all around it lie the most wonderful Indian villages. Not show places, real places. Each one built close about its church. People are the only interesting things there are in the world. But one has to come to the desert to find it out. And until you are in the desert, you never know how uninteresting you are yourself. I have been hard hit by new ideas of late, and I am as happy as possible. I've caught step at last. For the first two weeks, nothing happened to me. Then things began to happen so fast that I've had no time to write letters. I wrote you about the trip with the priest over to his Indian missions. Then came Julio. Hmm. Too beautiful to be true. And so different from anyone else in the world. He is the handsome one who sings in Veracruz. Knows such wonderful Mexican and Spanish songs. But there, if I begin on Julio, you would have to like me very much to be patient. I have not written a line since I left New York. But I have such a head full of stories that I dream about them at night. I've ridden and driven hundreds of miles. You would not know me. I am so dark-skinned and good-humored. Oh, please forget how cranky I used to be when I was tired. But I'm never going to get fussy like that again. I've never been so happy since I was a youngster as I have been this summer, back in my own country with my own people. Those weeks off in the deserts are weeks I shall never forget. They took all the kinks and crumples out. I feel as if my mind had been freshly washed and ironed and were ready for a new life. I feel as if I had got my second wind and would never torture myself about the little things again. When she returns east, having written not a word of fiction for many months, she is at last ready to take on a novel about the land and people she knows best. That book, O Pioneers, is such a break with almost everything she has published before that, though it is her second novel, in later life she will refer to it as her first. O Pioneers comes out in summer 1913. The reviews range from positive to ecstatic. Willis sends her sister the review from The Nation, noting with pleasure that it favorably compares her with David Graham Phillips, a fiction writer whose stories are also set in the West. The Nation seldom reviews and almost never praises a novel. I used to meet David Graham Phillips about the Waldorf, and I used to think, you big stuffed shirt and checked pants, I know more about the real West than you do, but I can never make anybody believe it because I wear skirts and don't shave. But you see, people do believe it after all, and I call that very jolly. Seventeen years after leaving Red Cloud, having published many stories and poems, hundreds of articles and reviews, and a mildly successful first novel, Willa Cather has now, as she approaches forty, written an immortal work of fiction. In this fateful scene near the end of the novel, Emil, the younger brother of the main character, Alexandra Bergson, goes to the house of Marie, the woman he has always loved, but who has married another and realized too late that it is Emil she loves. When he reached the orchard, the sun was hanging low over the wheat field. 
Long fingers of light reached through the apple branches as through a net. The orchard was riddled and shot with gold. Light was the reality. The trees were merely interferences that reflected and refracted light. Emil went softly down between the cherry trees toward the wheat field. When he came to the corner, he stopped short and put his hand over his mouth. Marie was lying on her side under the white mulberry tree, her face half hidden in the grass, her eyes closed, her hands lying limply where they had happened to fall. She had lived a day of her new life of perfect love, and it had left her like this. Her breast rose and fell faintly as if she were asleep. Emil threw himself down beside her and took her in his arms. The blood came back to her cheeks. Her amber eyes opened slowly. And in them, Emil saw his own face and the orchard and the sun. I was dreaming this, she whispered, hiding her face against him. Don't take my dream away. You've been listening to part two of our podcast series devoted to the life, fiction, and letters of Willa Cather. Portia Adney was the voice of Cather, and I'm Alex Hancock for Vermont's Last Theatre.